0: That plane leaves the ground and if you're not with him, you'll regret it. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon
1: and for the rest of your life. What about that? We'll always have Paris.
0: Indeed, we all will, because Paris defines what a city should be. Beyond its being the city of lights and a movable feast and so many other things, it's a model, the model, for what urban life should be. And that's how it grew up, from a desolate, war-torn landscape To one of the first cities to embrace street life, to welcome pedestrians, to be lit at night, to have public gardens, and where, as Joni Mitchell said, they kiss on Main Street. We're going to talk about this amazing city today with my guest, Joan DeJean. She is the trustee professor of Romance Languages at the University of Pennsylvania. She is the author of numerous previous books, including The Essence of Style and The Age of Comfort. And it is my pleasure to welcome Joan DeJean here to talk about. How Paris Became Paris, the Invention of the Modern City. Joan, thanks so much for joining us. I'm
1: glad to be here. Thanks
0: for having me. Great to have you here. Is it difficult in thinking about Paris and understanding its history and even writing about Paris to separate all of the mythology that is so much a part of Paris from its true history?
1: I think at times it could be. It It would depend on the project often. Uh, What I decided to do for this one was really to start my work with all the original documents on the construction of monuments, and then only after I'd understood what actually was there, to start reading the kinds of books like the First Travel Guides to the City for Foreign Visitors, uh, uh, works like that, that are that are certainly mostly real, but also have some hype to them.
0: And really, it began, you talk about construction. Paris, in many ways, began with a bridge, with a piece of construction.
1: An incredible project. I wish I knew how technologically it was all possible, some of these projects. We don't have, unfortunately. The one thing we don't have is any masons and engineers and people like that who left their memoirs to talk about how they did it. But an extraordinary bridge. still called. It's called the New Bridge, as it was then, the Pont Neuf, um, Uh, And it was an, an amazing bridge in many ways. It was the first major urban bridge to be built without houses on lining both sides. And that changed everything. If you think about contemporary bridges like London Bridge and the Ponte Vecchio in Florence, you have an idea of bridges with houses on both sides. People couldn't even see the river. You were just crossing and seeing houses. With the new bridge, you saw the river.
0: And the houses, in fact, were the way the bridges were paid for. That was what made many of the projects possible
1: absolutely all of them, the financing of bridges. It was a standard procedure to finance a bridge by allowing construction on both sides, and they had shops and residences on the bridge. And uh, Henry IV, the monarch who finished the, completion, who finished the project of the new bridge, decided not to do that. He wanted to break with precedent and do a new project, and he invented a new way of financing it, uh, which I think Californians will probably appreciate. He uh, taxed every cask of wine coming into the city of Paris to finance the bridge project. So, one contemporary, one of the first historians of the city of Paris, uh, said that drunkards paid for the new bridge. And Paris at the
0: time, as you describe it, was a pretty ugly, almost desolate kind of place.
1: There were certainly monuments left. I mean, Notre Dame Cathedral, uh, many of the great medieval monuments that we know were there, and there were a few great homes. But Paris had suffered a lot in the, uh, in the last four decades of the 16th century because of the wars of religion between Protestants and Catholics, which had often taken place in the streets of Paris. And there had been a lot of destruction because of all of this. And the population was decimated. People were, it was in a terrible, in terrible condition. The finances of France, not only Paris, were a wreck, by the end of 1600 when Henry IV began.
0: One of the impressions that we get of Paris, even from its desolate nature, is this sense of vastness, this sense of space, and the bridge that was built, the width of that bridge, the boulevards that came later, the width of those boulevards, all somehow took advantage of that sense of space. Talk a little bit about that, Joan.
1: I agree with you, and it's not only a sense of space, it's the sense of, I got the feeling of people who thought big. So you had city planners, uh, rulers, both kings and municipal governments, uh, and advisors to the kings, uh, and the architects and the engineers who planned these works and managed to pull them off, were doing things that were oversized for the by the period standards. The, the, for example, London Bridge, uh, at certain points between those houses, was only 12 feet wide, so you went through a very narrow passage when you crossed. the Thames on London Bridge, the the new bridge was 75 feet wide. I mean, this is a huge sizing difference. Uh, Streets at the beginning of the 16th century, the widest streets in Paris were 15 feet wide at the end of the 16th century, and there were only a handful of 15 feet wide streets. A A century later, by 1700, the average size of a street in Paris was 30 to 32 feet, so they were just doubling things.
0: And yet one of the things that's so remarkable and and I suppose ironic in, in some of this is that as big as it was, as big as they thought, that it still had a human scale, that the bridge and as other things evolved became very human in scale and very pedestrian friendly.
1: Yes, there were well they not only became they were intended that way. That was one of the things I was most impressed with in reading the decrees uh, putting in place all these projects for new urban works, uh, for example, the new bridge was the first monument ever, the first urban work ever, to include spaces reserved for pedestrians, sidewalks, so that uh, along each side of the bridge, there was a a sidewalk-sized raised walkway, which meant that carriages couldn't go on it even if they wanted to break the rules. So pedestrians had their own passageway across the river reserved for them. And this kind of thing continued in all the projects. In the first residential city square, which we know is the Place des Vosges, when it was planned, in the documents, Henry IV said, the people of Paris need a place to walk, because their homes are too crowded, so we need to give them recreational space. Now, that's something cities had just not thought of doing.
0: And talk a little bit about what happened, how how the city started to evolve once there were these pedestrian-friendly places, particularly the bridge, that brought people out
1: even at night. Yes no that really amazing things happened you can see it in the wonderful many wonderful paintings of the new bridge which are in collections all over Europe because tourists clearly bought them in the 17th century to bring them home to show people what was going on in Paris uh, and on the new bridge for example actors set up makeshift stages and they would really have real street theater, literally street theater, and people would stop on the bridge to watch it. Uh, Shopping, little shopping markets, not only markets with fresh fruit and vegetables and things like that, but uh, uh, markets with little stalls, like the stalls that line near the bridge and near the center, selling old books. They would sell in the 17th century uh, ribbons and bits of clothing, other kinds of uh, little items. So there was shopping on the bridge, there was theater on the bridge, Uh, people would stop and talk and walk along the bridge so there was lots going on on the bridge and in other parts of Paris even one of my favorite stories is on the, on the biggest street in Paris called the boulevard people would gather they would put up lights in the trees and people would dance on the boulevard until 3 and 4 in the morning
0: there was also a lot of flirting that went on on the bridge
1: on the bridge and in other places in public gardens and all people remarked lots of foreign visitors to Paris and pe- the first authors of the first guidebooks to the city in the late 17th century remarked that always that women went out in public much more often in Paris it was rare to see women walking just without supervision and chaperones in other cities and that women were constantly a presence on the, in the public spaces of Paris and in the gardens especially and on the bridge wherever the people went to to, to shop or to see each other or to, to just to walk and meet, lots of public flirting.
0: Why was that? Why were women more willing to go out in
1: Paris? I think there were a couple of factions, it's always hard to know how big big changes start and then you have to try to explain them I think people felt, women and everyone, aristocrats, everyone felt safer in spaces that were well designed that were well frequented, because these were places where you had a really, not only a crowd, but a mixed urban crowd and you can see in all the images of the bridge, for example, and of the new square and uh, all the new places in Paris, that you have aristocrats out in public, not in their carriages. And everyone remarked on this, that elsewhere in Europe, aristocrats rode around in carriages, so they were separated from the rest of the, of the city's inhabitants. But in Paris, they wanted to be out and about because there were new things to do. I think if you give people fun things to do and tell them that this is what is new and attractive and amusing, people are going to come out and do them in any city.
0: Tell us a little bit about the illumination, the light that came at night, and this elaborate system of kind of candles and pulleys and and the way that all worked
1: in that was one of the uh, very great decisions made in the early in Louis XIV's reign he's the grandson of Henry IV. and in this late in the mid 1660s there's a commission uh, created by the king and by the municipal authorities to discuss the question of the streets of Paris at night because they all realized that dark streets at night were dangerous people wouldn't go out and especially they were worried about the merchant community because they said merchants didn't dare they closed their shops early and it gets dark early especially. anyone who knows Paris in the wintertime, and after dark, they were afraid of going home with profits from the day uh, in their pockets. So they decided to create a system of street lighting. And there was a lot of debate. It went on for a long time, but in 1667 they started it with lanterns at the end, at each end of short streets uh, in Paris and then some in the middle in longer streets. Uh, and it was a system, as you said, with candles, big, big candles, designed to burn all night long. And the lanterns were attached to the sides of buildings and raised and lowered. And the candles that way could be put in and lit and raised after they had been uh, outfitted with their candles for the night. And this Transformed everything. Then people would go out at night. Merchants no longer felt afraid. It really changed the question of the city at night. Once this happened, everyone said the crime rate went down. They also put in. They had. They felt that at this point, the uh, those in charge, the Parisian police, were able with the they sh- the wonderful images with the lights showing how they can pursue the thieves at night. <laughs> Before, in the dark, there are many plays written about how hard it was to tell what to tr- find your thief at night and to pursue them. But once they have street lighting, they have a huge advantage.
0: One of the other things that Louis XIV did that you talk about is taking down the walls of the city. What did that do?
1: That's a huge, that's one of those decisions that I find, I have, it's so amazing, I have tr- trouble imagining how he came to it. Uh, he decided, he proclaimed that Paris was now safe. That it would not, and in fact, it was. It was not invaded at all uh, during his reign, and for a long time afterwards. And so, but the walled city that Paris had been for centuries was no longer necessary. Now, other cities in Europe. This is the 1660s, and there are other cities in Europe that are, are where people are still building new fortifications and certainly repairing existing fortifications. At that moment, Paris became the first major city just to tear down all of its fortifications and become what Louis XIV called an open city without walls.
0: What impact did that have psychologically as well as on the physical city?
1: Well, I think it had a huge one. People talked about how wonderful it was to be able to walk and to see not a wall, to have a this sense of a city with limits, but a sort of endless city. You could look and see the countryside outside, and they thought it was just, it gave their city, made their city so beautiful, and such a great place in which to stroll along the edge of the city. Uh, this, Paris was without a wall for about a century, just over a century, and in the late 18th century, those in charge of, of uh, collecting taxes on imported goods into the city decided that too many goods were being smuggled in, because there was no wall and it was harder to catch the people and charge the taxes. So they put up a tax, what they called the tax wall, which was not the first, not a defensive wall, but a wall designed to make sure that people had to enter the city at certain points and pay their taxes, and everyone in Paris complained. They said, it's awful, we can't see the countryside. Our city is less beautiful because of this.
0: Tell us about the public gardens, because that was another kind of urban innovation for Paris.
1: Yes, that Paris had had. There had been small gardens before this, uh, but they were largely reserved for the court and for the highest aristocrats. They were not public gardens. And in the course very early in the 17th century, it begins and it continues through the century, and the movement builds, especially during under Louis XIV's reign, so from 1660 to the end of the century, to make those gardens public in various ways, to have them and then to redesign them so that they're really planned, rec- large-scale plans, and recreational spaces
0: how did people use them how did people take to the idea of these big public gardens
1: well, you can imagine. I mean, and, and give, us, give people in the city huge green spaces with fountains, with park benches, with uh, planned trees and plantings, landscaping, you know, landscape architecture. They loved it. Uh, and ev- people came, all the foreign visitors would come and talk about how wonderful it was. And people would stroll. There were side alleyways. But if you look at the Tuileries today, it's very much the garden it was in the 17th century, uh, by the end of the 17th century. And, you you can see that people walk still under the shade of the trees in the side alleyways, big groups would walk in the middle, uh, the large central alleyway, which is less shaded. There were park benches. The first par- public park benches are set up in the Tuileries, and people could sit there and either r- relax, read a book, or flirt. Um, and then at night, people they would be put little candles. The Tuileries was still was sand covered, as it still is today, and little candles would be put in the sands. So people would come and sit in the Tuileries in little cafes open so you could get a drink in the evening.
0: You talk about people visiting. Paris, in many ways, invented tourism, urban tourism.
1: Well, it's certainly a new kind of urban tourism, a tourism that I think we would recognize today. People started to come to Paris, and they write about it in their accounts of their visits, and the guidebooks that then quickly begin to proliferate for foreign tourists describe the kinds of ways people were visiting the city. The biggest change is that they were visiting the city on foot that earlier tourists if you had the money to travel and not certainly not everyone did tended to come and by carriage and therefore you'd go in your carriage from one place to the next and the people coming at this point were traveling perhaps in their carriages but once they got to Paris they would explore the city on foot
0: all of these changes particularly from Henry the 4th on to Louis the 14th who we've been talking about Talk about the consistency of vision that the city maintained for this 100 plus year period that really brought all these things to the fore in ways that were really consistent with each other.
1: Yes, it's true. That's another of the big surprises for me, realizing that what happened, all the, there are many, there are many. In really close similarities among decrees, many of the decrees of written by Henry the Fourth, for example, for the, the decreeing the establishment of the Place des Vosges, the, the city square, and the decrees by Louis the Fourteenth for the boulevard or for public gardens, etc, have similar language. They all talk about the people of Paris wanting getting finding having room for people to come out and enjoy the city, and they talk about really things like not only say the merchant community making it safe for people making. It it easier for people to get around the city. So, the sense that uh, with increasing numbers, and Paris was growing in size, with increasing with numbers of vehicles, and there were certainly carriages, were really on the rise numbers of carriages. You had to work to make a city less congested, and they wanted to do that. They wanted to make a city in which people could, large numbers of people and vehicles could circulate easily. So, all those concerns remain. They also wanted to create a city in which you could admire. The city itself. So the fact of the new bridge and the house, bridge without houses, uh, the a, a, a city without walls where you can look at the countryside, where you can admire, and all the perspectives that we know in Paris, all these ideas are being put into place to give people something. There is beauty and people can admire it.
0: And where did those ideas come from? This very notion, this, this simple idea that you're talking about, that the city was, had a character unto itself, that it wasn't just a place to be, that it was also a place that had its own identity. Where did those ideas evolve from?
1: from all kinds of people, I think, at the same time, which is what's interesting. I think that's generally the case. First of all, the rulers. Henry the Fourth, for example, said explicitly uh, in the very early 1600s that he wanted to make Paris one of the wonders of the modern world. This was his desire. Louis the Fourteenth made similar claims, so they wanted to do this, and then the people who were putting, who were building these monuments, certainly understood, and they had great architects in charge of this. There was a whole redesign of the city uh, in the 1660s and 1670s, and it was led not by a a bureaucrat or a technocrat, as happened in the 19th century, but by great architects. And these were great architects who really understood that to make the city beautiful, you had to have ideas, you had to have principles, and you had to uh, follow through with a plan for keeping it all in place.
0: How did other cities and other places view Paris, and was there any pushback to what Paris was doing?
1: Well, there was a, a lot of following. I mean, there are many letters of official accounts, official visits. For example, when Peter the Great was planning his great city, which is Petersburg today, um, he visited... All, he traveled widely in Europe and Paris was one of the places he visited most intensely. and he visited all these spots the new bridge, the, the Place Royale, the gardens, uh, the river he was intent on learning about all these things. So many people came and studied Paris for its plans. Many of the ideas in Paris were copied. Some of those who were rebuilding, submitting plans for rebuilding London after the Great Fire were heavily influenced by the Parisian model and uh, certainly we know it in this country today in many of our cities.
0: Were there any mistakes made were there any things done that just didn't work out
1: there were times when they really couldn't when they were having trouble i mean for example when they designed the city the plan design takes place in the 1670s and they have made a plan for you know really redesigning the whole cityscape by the time they got to the completion of the segment that had been planned at that point, they just couldn't make things work. So they had to redo and had a lot of trouble with the whole area that becomes developed as the Champs Elysees area. So there were areas that gave them more trouble, and I'm sure every, all of them would have agreed that there are things they would have done differently. But overall, it's a plan that gave us Paris that is. Still recognizably the city that we see today.
0: How much of, of what we've been talking about is still part of Paris today?
1: All, If you visited Paris, and walked in the city. You have walked on many streets put into place in the 17th century. You've strolled along the original boulevard and used it as part of your transportation. You just don't know it. Uh, I used maps throughout the book showing segments of the city as they were being put into place, whole maps and details of maps, to show people the walks and the things that they have been on, the the islands, the squares, the bridges, the parts of the 17th century that are it virtually intact from the 1600s to today. So visitors to Paris know this city; they just don't think of it as a 17th century city.
0: And speaking of walking places, really, the very first sidewalks are in Paris.
1: Well, the, the, the new bridge is the beginning of that concept, and then the other, the next place where the Parisians, re, city planners, really develop the notion of sidewalks are on the walkways near the river so people who walked along the river and seen this phenomenon, you're also using a 17th century phenomenon.
0: Were there other periods Paris had post this period that we're talking about where there was as much development and innovation, or did this really set the standard?
1: Well, certainly everyone knows the 19th century redesign of Paris carried out by Baron Hussman. And it's certainly a period of great change in the city. Many of the principles... Ousmane used, however, were principles developed from city, urban, city, urban planning in Paris in the 17th century. So pa- the 17th century set a real Parisian template.
0: Joan Dijon, the book is How Paris Became Paris, the Invention of the Modern City. Joan, I thank you so much for spending time with us today.
1: Thank you. Those were great questions. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.